A very good evening to everybody. Welcome to this Retina UK information webinar. Uh, this is one of a series of webinars we're hosting and we'll be delivering at least one on a different topic each month. We are really pleased to have with us today, Dr. Sawa Rayman. Um, Sawa is a, a clinical research fellow at Oxford University Hospitals. Uh, she's currently working on the ongoing gene therapy trials for choroideremia uh, and RPGR X-linked retinitis pigmentosa um, under the supervision of Professor Robert McLaren. We are also joined with us this evening by Kay Arkell, our research development manager, who will be collecting questions throughout the uh, presentation this evening. So there are a couple of ways for you to ask questions. Uh, you can either type them in the Q&A section at the bottom of your screens. Uh, these questions will be asked by the team on your behalf. Alternatively, you can raise your hand um, by pressing the Alt and Y key if you're using a Windows computer, or the Option and Y if you're on a Mac. If you're on a tablet, um, you'll find them under Reactions. Uh, we will then, as we say, we'll ask you to unmute your microphone um, and you can ask the question yourself. Um, and those will be done at the end of the presentation. So please, if you have any questions um, as Sal was going through, um, leave them or raise your hand and we will uh, do a Q&A session at the end. We will endeavour to answer as many questions as we can. Uh, however, any questions we're not able to get to today will be followed up over the coming weeks. So thank you again for joining us. And without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce Salwa. Thank you, Matthew. Um, I'll just share my screen. So thank you, um, everyone, uh, Matthew and everyone at the Retina UK for having me deliver this talk today. Um, and thank you to everyone who's joining in tonight. Um, as uh, Matthew introduced, I'm Salwa Raymond, um, and I'm a, uh, this is my second year as a clinical research fellow um, under the supervision of Professor Robert McLaren at the Oxford Eye Hospital. Um, a little about my background. So um, I completed my medical training um, in the University of Liverpool. Um, and while I was there, I took a year out to uh, study a master's uh, in research. Uh, and more specifically, uh, one of my projects involved uh, looking at um, a novel way of measuring eye pressures. So that was my kind of first introduction into the research world and, and got me really interested in ophthalmology. Um, after uh, medical school, I then um, completed my junior doctor training uh, in Bolton Hospital um, in Greater Manchester. Um, and then after this, uh, I wanted to take some time out to explore sort of my interests. Uh, and I, I sought out this position in August uh, 2020. Um, and it gave me a really fantastic opportunity to learn about, um, you know, this exciting field of gene therapy, which was completely new to me, um, as well as get more experience into the clinical trials uh, and, and ophthalmology. So um, today I'll share with you some of what I've learned over the past year and a half. Um, and uh, please feel free to ask questions at the end. Okay, so, um, so this is what I'll, you know, just to set the scene a little bit, I'll first briefly talk about what part the clinical research plays in the process of developing new drugs. Um, and then I'll explain a little bit about what we mean when we talk about a clinical study um, before talking in more detail about the different phases of clinical trials. Um, I'll then go through what a study plan or a study protocol includes, who's involved in clinical trials, and some of the things you should consider as potential research trial or clinical trial participants um, or patients. After that, I'll... Um, give a brief update on the current and recent trials I've been a part of since um, being in Oxford. Um, and finally, how you can register your interest should you be interested in clinical trials. So firstly, I mean, we're, we're all here one way or another because we want new treatments to become available for conditions that are yet uh, untreatable. Uh, so there are five main steps in the drug development process. 
So typically this starts with the discovery and development of a new drug. Researchers may learn new insights into a disease process and design a product to stop or reverse the effect of the disease. And this step usually begins in the lab with many tests on hundreds of molecular compounds uh, from which only a small number show promise. And um, so further experiments would be done to gather more information on how the compound is absorbed, how it's distributed, metabolized and excreted, uh, its potential benefits and side effects, the best dosage, best way to give the drug and how it interacts with other drugs and more. So following this, the next stage is testing this new drug um, for potential to cause serious harm or damage. Um, the two types of preclinical studies are in vivo uh, or in vitro. So in vitro being in the lab and in vivo being animal testing. So usually preclinical studies are not very large. They provide important information on dosing and toxicity. Um, and while these preclinical studies answer really important questions about the safety, they can't tell us how the drug will interact with the human body. Um, and this is where the next stage in the process uh, comes in, which is the clinical research involving human participants. Um, and this involves testing for safety and effectivity of the product, of the treatment or intervention. And we'll talk a bit more in detail about clinical trials in just a moment, uh, but just for the sake of uh, a completion, once uh, a, a trial has been completed um, and reviewed by the Food and Drug uh, Administration, uh, the FDA, and they have decided to approve or not, um, the, the next step is basically, so following the review, the final step is uh, post-market safety monitoring. Because although we have all this information to approve the drug, we don't have the long-term um, kind of data on the drug uh, and the true picture of the drug safety sort of evolves over the months and years um, in, in the marketplace and, and when it's being uh, offered to patients. So uh, an example of this kind of monitoring um, after the approval is the perceived study, um, which is uh, gathering data for patients who have been treated with Luxterna, uh, you may have heard of. Um, and this is a new gene therapy treatment for RPE65. So currently patients are being treated in Oxford on Luxterna and we are gathering data on the perceived study for that. So this is a, an example of um, post-market safety monitoring. So now going back to what is a clinical study? So there's many different types of research studies involving human participants, but the two main types of clinical study are clinical trials and observational studies. And the main types um, of the clinical studies, so in a clinical trial, participants receive uh, specific interventions according to the research plan or protocol, uh, which is created by the investigators. So these interventions may be uh, new medicinal products uh, like drugs or devices or procedures. Um, some trials may compare a drug to a new drug, uh, sorry, compare a new drug to one that already exists um, or compare it to a placebo, um, which contains no active ingredient uh, or to no invent intervention at all. So when a new drug or a, a new approach is being studied, it's not really known whether it will be helpful or harmful um, or no different to what's already on the market what's already available, including not doing anything. Um, so this is why clinical trials are needed to determine the safety and efficacy of a new intervention by measuring certain outcomes in the participants. So for example, giving a new drug to uh, participants with high blood pressure to, uh, and, and testing them uh, to see whether that drug is able to lower their blood pressure or um, testing a new gene therapy treatment in RP patients, the retinitis, pigment, retinitis pigmentosa, uh, to see if that treatment is able to improve the patient's vision or 
um, slow down the degeneration in those patients. So there's all these different types of uh, interventional trials, depending on what you're testing for. Um, and these clinical trials are used to develop new drugs um, and, uh, and they occur in phases, which are defined by the Food and Drug Administration. So these are the, bit, the, the phases of the clinical trials. So we've discussed sort of basic research and preclinical um, research um, before a clinical trial can move on to uh, sort of the different phases. To do this, to move a trial beyond the preclinical stage, the sponsors have to begin um, the, what we call the investigational new drug process application. And this is a lengthy kind of process, which uh, an application that before beginning clinical research includes all the details about all the prior animal testing that's been done, all the data to include safety and toxicity so far, how the drugs manufactured, how, what the study plan is, um, any data from any prior human research and any information about the investigators. And then we move on once that is approved to the first phase, which is the, um, the physiologic or uh, toxicity and dose finding study. Um, this usually consists of a few volunteers, about 20, about 20 to 100 people um, with the disease. And the main goal is to show possible side effects and the safe range um, of a possible new drug. Um, and this part of the study can usually take um, several months to a couple of years. In the second phase, uh, looks at the drug efficacy and side effects. Um, efficacy being, um, is the drug having the desired effect? Is it slowing down degeneration? Is it stimulating new cell growth, um, etc.? Um, while also at the same time monitoring for any adverse events or side effects. Um, and this phase can again take a couple of years uh, and several hundred people uh, are needed to fulfill this goal um, at this stage. So the final phase before approval, um, the phase three, uh, tests the efficacy, the effectiveness and safety of the drug. Um, in many more thousands of volunteers and uh, different places and centers. Um, and this allows us to see how the intervention translates to practice. Can it be delivered safely uh, in a variety of different centers uh, and, and um, safely and effectively? Um, and it compares the intervention to the other available treatments um, already out there, um, if there are any, um, and, and this data is collected. Again, um, this phase can take a number of years, so up to four years or even more uh, with many thousands of volunteers. Um, and that is if everything goes smoothly. Um, and finally, uh, phase four trials. So after approval uh, of a drug uh, by the FDA, um, this is after the drug's already been licensed and they aim to evaluate the treatment over an increased duration for post-marketing and surveillance. So um, they aim to find out more about the side effects and safety of the drug, uh, what the long-term risks and benefits are, and how well the drug works uh, when it's more, more widely used. So this slide, um, basically the aim is to give you an overview of sort of the different phases um, and the timeline um, of how long each phase takes uh, when everything goes smoothly. So one example I have, which um, I'll share with you and which put this kind of time scale into perspective for me um, was the Reneuron trial. Uh, this is the uh, stem cell research trial, uh, sorry, stem cells stem cell transplantation trial uh, for patients with uh, retinal degeneration, which Professor McLaren and his team uh, tested on mouse models about 15 years ago. 
um, and from that preclinical stage to the first inhuman phase one trial, it took 15 years um, to get there. Um, so I've basically contradicted everything I said <laughs> just now. Um, but that's just to illustrate that, you know, from the from, from preclinical stage to actually treating the first patient at phase one, that's taken us 15 years. Um, and we treated our first patient in Oxford three months ago. So that was a big, big moment for the team and, and for, you know, um, for this community, I think. Um, so the timescales are not always predictable and straightforward uh, because for many of these diseases, there's still so much more that we have to learn. Um, but we're very optimistic for the future because um, there's some amazing, amazing work being done in the lab. Um, so just moving on to, I mentioned earlier that each study at each phase, phase needs a, a, a detailed study plan or a study protocol. So what does this exactly include? So before a clinical trial begins, all the prior information on the drug is reviewed to develop research questions and objectives. The study protocol um, is then written to set the inclusion and exclusion criteria, the selection criteria, um, the study size, the length of the study, what controls will be used, the mode of delivery of the intervention or drug, um, the dosages that will be used, um, any tests and assessments that will be conducted and, and how they'll be conducted and at what time points they'll be done um, and how the data will be analyzed at the end. And um, I mentioned controls there and that's a very important um, aspect. Um, I think the eye is a great organ to test gene therapy because we have two of the same organ in our body. So uh, one of them acts as a natural control uh, to compare the effects of a treatment versus no intervention. Um, and so this is a great uh, way to eliminate any bias in the study. Um, this is a very busy slide, but um, essentially it's just to highlight that there are very uh, many, many experts in a variety of different fields involved in the design and delivery of a trial. Um, and just to mention that all the people involved have to be trained um, in good practices so that we can um, basically deliver a good trial. Um, so what is it that you should consider as a participant um, or as a patient? What's important for you? So if you were to come into clinic um, and you were considering um, joining a clinical trial uh, and there was something that we could offer you. Um, we would obviously talk about the trial, give you all the information. All the information would be discussed with you verbally in clinic, as well as giving you a participant information sheet, um, which will include all the information you need about the risks and benefits of the, in the, um, the treatment, the eligibility criteria, the inclusion and exclusion criteria, um, the, the process, um, is sort of discussed with you uh, and, and we get an informed consent from you. So you get all the information, all the risks and benefits and are offered the chance to kind of relay the information back to us and ask any questions or any misunderstandings. So we make sure that you're very, very clear of all the information necessary to make this decision and we get a written uh, consent from you. Uh, that being said, it's not, um, you know, um, a signed informed consent um, isn't, uh, you know, a contract. So uh, participants can withdraw from a study at any time, um, even if the study is not over yet. So it's just to get your permission to join the, the trial, but you can leave at any time should you wish not to continue. Um, the commitment uh, that it takes because it is a huge commitment to um, kind of sign up to a trial. And we always are very frank and, uh, and open about this because everyone has a lot of things going on in our lives. We're busy with work, with family. Um, and so, you know, taking time out for these 
very frequent um, clinic visits is a commitment uh, and also a commitment to do these tests and assessments each time you come. Uh, so that's a big consideration um, once you join the trial uh, or in the initial stages um, you go through a screening process um, and through the screening process you do all the kind of uh, assessments and tests that need to that are needed to determine whether you're eligible for the trial and whether you meet the criteria and whether you are able to uh, conduct the tests uh, reliably um, each time, um, which is very important for us to sort of monitor your progress and monitor any benefits uh, of the therapy that you've received. Um, so the screening process can occur in a, um, a number of visits, so two to three visits usually, um, following which you um, then have your treatment um, and then after that, there's usually visits uh, that go from once a week to um, sort of day one, day eight, month one, month two, month four, month six, um, up to sort of a year. And then following that, they sort of increase um, in the duration of follow-ups. So like month at six monthly follow-ups usually um, is what we do for the long-term follow-ups for um, many of the trials that um, we uh, we have going on at the moment. But it, it is trial-specific, um, and any of this information would be sort of made very clear in the participant information sheet and the kind of commitment um, that the trial demands from you, basically. Um, just a, a few examples of the sort of tests that you would be uh, required to do should you sort of join any trials. So this is um, uh, an NETDRS chart, which is basically a visual acuity chart. So um, you're required to sort of read that to see, to check your level of uh, vision each time you visit. And that helps us to monitor what, how your central vision is doing. Um, these are images of scans. Um, of the back of the eye. So the two, the long one in the back here, this is the cross section of the retina. Um, and this one is sort of a, um, a an image of the back of the eye. If you're looking from directly in front, so this is the patient's right eye. And here through this green line, we're looking at this sort of cross section of the retina with the different layers of the retina showing. Um, and we can see this, this bit here is the normal sort of um, uh, macula or the central part of the retina. But as you go out into the periphery, the retinal layers are thinned out. Um, and essentially this patient has a retinitis pigmentosa um, as a result of an Usher 2A mutation, which causes uh, this sort of appearance. And this image at the bottom here uh, is an autofluorescence image. Um, again, of the back of the eye. Here is the optic nerve with the optic uh, with the vessels, and this sort of pigmentation that you can see in the periphery. That's the uh, kind of a hallmark of retinitis pigmentosa. Um, and this in the middle, uh, this sort of ring appearance. Um, is where we can see these structures here. And this is a macula, so the very central part of your vision where you have the cone cells. Um, and between this bit and this bit, all of this central bit is the normal healthy functioning retina, which is this bit. And as you move further outwards, which is towards this kind of white ring, you see these cells have lost part of their segments, which is the outer segments. And this sort of gives the appearance of the ring, um, which is basically, a, it's termed ciliopathy. Um, 
where you lose it, there's like a transition zone where you lose the outer segments. And this kind of pattern of degeneration is typically seen in, uh, in an Usher 2A retinitis pigmentosa. So it's very important for us to sort of get these scans at each visit and monitor your progression um, from each visit and from before the surgery or before the therapy to after the therapy. Uh, this is just to illustrate sort of a color picture that you would um, have done when you come to clinic. It's just a nice picture to look at. <laughs> um, and, and here's a, a picture. Um, so this is a, a visual field test that you would have called microperimetry. Um, and essentially this is um, the result that we would get and interpret. So, this is from a patient with choroideremia. And as you can see here, this is the choroideremia island, um, typically seen um, in this condition. So this bit of the retina is functioning well. And so when you do the, the visual field test, it measures points of sensitivity. Uh, you basically focus on a red light and click the button each time you see the light blink in, these, um, in this sort of pattern. Um, in this area uh, and it looks at that kind of central vision um, and picks up on your the areas of your retina which are sensitive um, and we sort of monitor that over your follow-up visits to see how the disease is progressing whether you've had some kind of gain in your sensitivity in your retina following treatment things like that um, and also it kind of tells you about your fixation um, and, and basically how you're progressing. So um, just, uh, I thought I would give a little update on the current and recent trials that I've been a part of since uh, being in Oxford. Um, so for choroideremia, uh, GT1 uh, was a phase one trial uh, for choroideremia. This was before my time. Um, but this was the very, I included that because it's the very first phase. We then had the night study, uh, which is the observational uh, study. So patients enrolled onto that who didn't receive an intervention, but we monitored them over a period of time to see how the condition progressed. Um, the regenerate was the next phase, the phase two trial. Uh, this closed uh, earlier in 2021, um, and the last uh, patient was uh, treated in June 2019. Um, and then the STAR, STAR trial came uh, after that, which is a phase three. So all these phases testing these kind of safety and tolerability and efficacy of the drug. Um, and um, uh, so for the phase three trial, uh, patients were treated uh, sort of around November, December of 2020. Um, and um, so that's uh, now not recruiting anymore. So, so the results for the STAR trials were uh, released earlier on um, from Biogen, um, which um, basically didn't meet the official sort of uh, um, finding was that it didn't meet the primary endpoint um, but um, so currently the, the trial has been suspended, um, but you know, the, the labs are not making the vectors um, at the moment because they're all busy with the COVID um, vaccine. So at the moment, um, the trial isn't moving forward. It's been suspended, but we are hopeful and uh, we'll watch this space essentially. And soon, uh, you know, as soon as we hear any information about that trial moving forward, we will um, we will let everyone know. Um, for all of these trials, uh, they the patients um, are being followed up long term on the solstice um, trial. So this is the five year follow up of all the patients enrolled on the STAR and uh, Regenerate um, trials. So currently, um, I am still seeing patients on the long term follow up. Um, over on the other side, we have the retinitis uh, pigmentosa trial. So the Zolaris was the observational study. Um, 
serious phase one and two um, uh, basically that uh, that trial is also finished um, the last patient was treated in on the 30th of uh, September in 2019 um, and currently patients from this uh, study is being followed up on the long-term um, study the solstice up to five years um, and then um, just below that is the Reneuron phase one, two trial, which I mentioned earlier on, which is uh, currently we are recruiting patients for. So, so far we've treated two patients uh, in Oxford um, with this trial. So um, I think we have the go ahead for the new year um, to kind of recruit further patients onto that. Um, and then finally, uh, at the bottom, Perceive uh, is the trial we're collecting data on patients treated with Luxterna, um, which is um, sort of collecting the long-term data. And, uh, and finally, how you can register your interest. So if you go on the uh, iResearch Oxford website, you can fill in uh, kind of the, the contact us form there. Or alternatively, you can email the ergo email address, so ergo at oeh.nhs.uk, and uh, or, or email the office uh, on that number there at the bottom. And we're always very happy to hear from you. And just a little thank you to everyone uh, in the team. So this is our lab group. Um, this uh, picture is from our recent uh, annual lab dinner. Uh, we get dressed up once a year, which is very nice. And, um, and we have lovely socials um, at some other times in the year, which is, you know, we have some fun. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much for listening to me today. I'm sure there's uh, um, questions and I'm happy to answer. Thank you ever so much, Salwa. Um, that was really interesting um or just probably best if you stop sharing and then yeah perfect um um yeah i think it's it's really important um for our community because there's so much coming through now there's such a lot going on and it's getting really quite exciting um and i think we're really grateful to you for giving us an overview of how the process works because i think people need to understand that um, so that they can make really informed choices about whether these trials are something that they perhaps want to take part in. And I think it's helpful also just to know what treatments have been through, um, even once they, they get to sort of the NHS and, and wider availability. I think it's reassuring to, to understand how they've been tested. Um, I always forget that whole investigational new drug bit of the process that, that people have to go through all the sort of bureaucratic hoops that have to happen just to move from your preclinical work into human studies and um yeah that, that obviously exists for safety reasons but it's always just worth us remembering how much process there is behind all this and why it sometimes takes yeah. a bit a bit longer than i really want. wanted to highlight just exactly how you know how much it takes at each step and and yes it's disappointing to hear sometimes when trials come to a hold or you know things aren't moving as fast as we would like to but I have a newfound kind of appreciation for these things coming into this only sort of over a year and a half ago before this I had the same kind of um, ideas about clinical trials you know mm. uh, but now being on this side and looking at really how the the process works um, there's a lot of work and a lot of people involved and um, a lot of really good research work happening in the background. So I think it's, um, we're all really optimistic and hopeful that lots of good stuff is gonna come out in the future. Mm. It actually ties in with one of the questions that we've got in the box, if I can just move it up. Um, so Matthew said, do you think trials will begin adopting the way that the COVID vaccine was developed with phases overlapping? Or do you think that was a one-off and unique to the pandemic? Um, this is something that people are asking quite a lot at the moment, you know, if the COVID vaccine could happen so quickly, yeah. why can't everything? But I guess. I think, um, I mean, I'll, I'll try my, that's a very interesting question, actually. It's making me think. Um, 
I think with the conditions like these inherited retinal um, diseases, they progress at varying rates and at slow kind of um, rates of progression. So oftentimes you need that time to see if an effect can be found um, after a treatment's been administered. Um, in my experience, you know, for example, um, take into account the STAR trial, uh, phase three. The primary endpoint for that was, uh, you know, uh, reading three lines on the chart. Um, so were patients able to read three lines on the chart um, at the end of the trial? And, and the, some patients were, but, you know, there wasn't a, a good enough uh, or uh, many people or not enough patients were able to meet um, that criteria. But if you look at the secondary outcome, which is, you know, reading two lines, many patients were able to meet that criteria. And I just wonder whether if the trial was to go on for a bit longer, we may see that, you know, over time, more patients would have a more meaningful outcome. Mm -hmm. um, or it could be that, you know, the outcome um, should have been two lines. And that's the, uh, that's the sort of um, the mark that we should be aiming for. Um, so I don't know, I think in my mind, I feel like there needs to be as, you know, a, a long enough time period to see whether, you know, a, an effect can be found uh, in these conditions, mm. but it does make you wonder how they can <laughs> do it so quickly for the COVID vaccines. Yeah, I think, I think you make a really, really good point. And it's really important that we don't rush these things and actually miss a potential beneficial effect. Absolutely. And I know that some of our community would say, it, it's interesting actually the way you describe that endpoint, because I hadn't thought of it like that, that you sort of set this endpoint of a, a very black and white binary, you can or cannot read these lines. And so many of our community say, any vision is better than no vision. And even if I could just stop it where it is, and yeah. that doesn't quite seem to marry up. So that, that was, that was an interesting, um, an interesting aside, if you like, but I guess as well, perhaps the COVID vaccines, we have so much vaccine background and knowledge and whereas gene therapies and things like that are so new. Relatively new, yeah. And I wondered as well, it was interesting that you mentioned um, the vector production actually stopping because everybody's churning out COVID vaccine and I hadn't thought of that. So has the, has the COVID vaccine development or if you like, and that concentration actually slowed other things down a little bit? Has that had much Absolutely. Impact? I think, um, you know, all the labs are making COVID vaccines, so there is not enough vector to go around. Um, so there was definitely, uh, you know, trials had slowed down um, further kind of stages. Um, for example, for uh, the RP study, um, you know, the next stage hasn't really been uh, announced yet. We, we haven't heard anything about that trial moving forward. And, and I suspect part of the reason for that is um, actually, you know, the resources. Um, is there enough vector <laughs> being yeah. produced to do that? Yeah. So just to just to outline for those that don't know, Vector is the uh, viral uh, package, the virus package that we put um, gene therapy, the genetic material inside to carry it into the back of the eye, the cells at the back of the eye. Um, and but obviously um, some of the COVID vaccines use virus, modified virus to um, to produce the immune response we want from a vaccine. Is that correct, Selwa? Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's why uh, vector manufacturing takes place. It's a very specialist manufacturing process. And that's why um, those places that can make that vector are a bit uh, preoccupied at the moment. OK, we'll move on to some other questions. Um, Paul says, do you feel that older patients, perhaps in their 60s, are a lower priority for gene therapy? Now, I don't know whether Paul means for a clinical trial necessarily or for the actual treatment. But I'm guessing that the main issue is not age per se, but the degree of deterioration of the retina. Yeah, I mean, there's um, uh, there's different criteria that play into the selection 
um, process and these criteria are very um, clearly laid out for us before we begin recruiting. Um, part of the criteria is, does the patient have the required gene mutation that we're looking to study? Um, does the patient have the level of vision that we want to treat? So we don't want to treat patients with too good vision because again, what's the risk versus benefit for those patients? We don't want to treat patients with too poor vision because are they, with that poor vision, are they able to reliably and consistently repeat the tests required for us to make, you know, a measurement or an outcome to see whether the treatment is working or not. So, uh, so these criteria are laid out for us before we begin recruiting. Age doesn't really play a part into it. It depends on your sort of general health, whether you can take or tolerate um, sort of a I mean, I'm talking about gene therapy trials here. So, you know, a, a general anesthetic, for example, um, and how's your mental and physical health, basically. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, age is not a discriminatory factor. Obviously, some trials um, state that the patient needs to be above 18 um, if, if it is um, a trial recruiting adults. Um, but no, I haven't come across, mm -hmm. you know, an exclusion criteria based on age. And gene therapy, I mean, certainly from what I've heard, seems to be more likely to work when things haven't progressed too far because you need surviving retinal cells to be able to make use of this, this treatment. But again, that's presumably, even once the treatment is available, for example, Luxterna, obviously you've got to have the correct genetic diagnosis, but Absolutely. then the decision is going to be based on, on the actual state of your retina rather than your age so it's, yes, it's, exactly. it's about that rather than yeah okay uh lots of questions oh hang on okay so um Catherine says can any patient from across the UK get in touch with you in Oxford are there other sites offering recruitment in different areas of the UK I guess that's going to depend on the trial to an extent but um yes um I think anyone is very welcome to get in touch if you just like some information uh, about the trials that we're doing here specifically, um, or if you would like to be seen by one of the clinicians in Oxford, um, you're very welcome to get in touch. Um, uh, you can also get all the information about the trials that are happening in Oxford on the iResearch group um, specifically, but I think for specific trials that aren't happening in Oxford, you may be able to contact the other centers directly mm. so um catherine um there are it, it depends on the trial as to what centers are taking part um the renewon trial for example as far as i'm aware oxford is the only uk center involved in that trial yes. and you're just recruiting a very small number of participants for that at the moment um morefield sometimes recruits patient for patients for some trials um uh there's other places around the country that might do as well. Um, somebody else has actually asked, said, what's the website for those wanting to register an interest in volunteering for a study? So could you just remind us of which the Oxford one is? And we can perhaps also um, get some of this information sent out as a follow-up um, possibly to the webinar. Yeah, um, I can forward you those details. Um, the okay. website is iresearchoxford.org.uk. Perfect. Um, and yes, I know that um, specifically to Catherine's question, because um, I'm sometimes in touch with the clinical trials coordinators at Oxford, and they're very happy for anybody anywhere to um, fill in a form and give Oxford permission to access your medical records and then potentially get in touch with you if they think that you might be suitable for clinical trial but it is worth remembering as Salwa mentioned there are always a lot of criteria and that sort of I guess you're you're able to get a certain amount of idea about people's eligibility from their medical records and their history yeah absolutely so um the things that are very useful when you do get in touch with us and are interested in trials <clears throat> excuse me um are um so your visual acuity. Um, so if you could get that from uh, your um, local ophthalmologist or opticians, um, 
that's uh, and any genetic confirmation is very very helpful because um, for many of the trials they have specific genes um, that you know are being treated um, or may be eligible you don't want to recruit patients with uh, gene mutations that may have other trials that may be beneficial for us for example for them for example um, so for for Reneuron specifically um, we are looking for patients uh, who have a cone rod dystrophy uh, retinitis ideally um, you know a confirmed retinitis pigmentosa mutation um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be so if you have a cone rod dystrophy um, and then and then we basically base it on the, the strict sort of visual acuity criteria that we have so it's very helpful to have that information and we can basically take that to give you further information about um, your eligibility. Okay but then obviously the screening still has to happen and that involves a huge number of tests and and things doesn't it? And, and we do have uh, you know we have to remember that you can go through to the screening process but then you could fail the screening and which is very common um, you know some patients may have the right gene they may have the right kind of visual acuity but then they may not have the kind of consistency or, or the, the ability to do uh, the testing that's required um, and, uh, and so unfortunately in those circumstances you can't move forward because essentially you want to recruit patients who can do all these things so that we can get the best data so that we can mm. move the drug development process forward um so um yeah yeah i guess not being able to take part in the trial aside from the fact that obviously the trial takes time and and the condition perhaps continues to progress but not being able to take part in the trial doesn't necessarily mean that you couldn't have the treatment if it were to later become available yeah. it's just that the trial demands very rigorous kind of um measurement and standardization would that be fair to say yeah definitely yeah. so you know um it's so that we can get the best quality data so that to move the trial forward because we all want to get to the next stage and get the drug approved right so um you know the the better the data is the better the you know patients we recruit um the quicker we can move on to those stages and then the treatment can become available for everyone mm. uh, it's just that at different stages uh, the inclusion criteria requires vision of a certain level so you don't want to start with patients with really good vision because you know again it comes down to the risk benefit of it all. Mm -hmm. yeah so actually those people with more advanced vision loss are useful to you <laughs> I hate to put it like that but in the very early stages yeah. because there's people of all vision are very useful yeah uh, but, but yeah at certain stages uh, we're looking for certain um you know levels of vision yeah okay um i think um yeah some specific questions about certain trials somebody's asked are there any trials for the eys gene in rp now i don't know off the top of my head that is ringing a bell but i don't think it's a clinical trials i've looked up for that i think somebody's asked me about that before are you aware of anything with um, eys i can't guess off the top of my head yeah. so i'm sorry I, that's I can't fine know. um I can follow up with that. I can have a look online and follow up with that. Matt, if you could make a note of that question or it will be recorded anyway. Um, sorry, I'm just having some problems scrolling on my laptop at the moment. Um, Debbie says, can members of the public access the results from trials, previous trials or current trials? Um, kind so, of partly commercially sensitive, aren't they sometimes? But so the, the, the information that's uh, publicly available available so on the uh, sponsors website for example um uh the the two i can think of is the the recent star trials um kind of press release and uh the serious phase two uh the results from these are available um on the on biogen's website um now the the, the research manuscripts which may be a little bit too advanced for everyone um they offer more in-depth results for these studies um, and 
some of these have been published and uh, some of these are currently in the works at the moment. So um, I think usually patients do get an update when more information about the study results are available. Um, somebody's actually asked a specific question about results from the Sirius um, phase one, two trial. Um, has that has that data been fully analysed yet? Is that? Um, I think they they are working on it at the moment, so it's not available um, okay. publicly yet. It, it's still in the works. It's coming. Do you know how long, on average, that brings me to ask that data analysis takes? Because I think that's important as well that we we all have to remember that that's another job that has to be done that's going on behind the scenes. So yes. from the, from a trial ending to that data being available, do you know how long that normally is? Again, um, it's kind of like uh, when I spoke about the timelines before, um, they can take a long time. Um, you know, I think the serious phase two ended in, uh, when was it, in uh, 2019, the last patient in Oxford. It takes quite a bit of time because it involves so many different people of different specialties and, and experts in different fields. Um, but, you know, rest assured that this data is not going to go to waste. It it is being analysed, and we just have to sort of watch the space. Um, I can't give you an exact time. No, no. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, I know that when you're living with sight loss, it can feel just so such a laborious process. And I hope it's maybe a tiny bit of comfort to remember that people are working really hard on it, and there's there's reasons why. It all takes so long and ultimately we want to get the best results yes. at the end of it for for everybody going forward yes, um, things, things have slowed down a little bit because of, because of covid um but but things are running up and um, back up and running again um jenny says how do we find out which genetic mutation um i'm not quite sure Jenny whether you mean how do you find out which genetic mutation you have or what clinical trials are going on so um, perhaps we between us we can try and address um, both of those two questions so Sal would you want to just explain to people how they would go about finding out which genetic mutation they had themselves yeah um, so if you're being seen uh, at your local ophthalmologist or local hospital or local eye hospital um, you can request a genetic test uh, to be done um, and that basically just requires some bloods to be taken from you and your permission to run a genetic test on that uh, to test for the genes that are suspected to be you know um, causing the disease so if you're for example uh, suspected to have RP or you have a clinical diagnosis of RP then you can get your genetic testing done uh, to look at those specific genes um, and, okay. and having that report is so important uh, when you come to see us because it gives us a lot of information and a, and a confirmation on the diagnosis. Okay and, and Jenny we have got some information um, on our Unlock Genetics website if you're ever struggling to get a referral for that um, we've got some information about that which is at um, retinauk.org.uk forward slash genetics um, about how to get referred. Um, but the other possible, I think Jenny possibly also meant, how do I know what trials are going on for what, for what genes? Um, my go-to would be clinicaltrials.gov in the first instance. Yeah. Have you got any, anywhere else that you can recommend, Salwa? Uh, to be honest, that's the one we recommend in clinic because they have, you know, it's required for, for the any ongoing trials to be listed on there. Uh, so chances are you will find any trial on there. Okay, so that's, so, um, that's uh, a website which is www.clinicaltrials.gov. Um, it's actually an American government website, I think, but um, people all around the world, the companies and, and, and researchers all around the world can register their study on that um, website and you can search it. So if you want to search for retinitis pigmentosa and then potentially you can add in another term and you could put in there the name of a gene um, and that should find if there are any studies for that particular gene, they should pop up. But I always have to caveat clinicaltrials.gov with the fact that um, anybody can register any study on there. So it's always worth, if you're gonna, 
you know get in touch with a study um, and and think about taking part that you just run it past your own ophthalmologist um, or another um, expert just to check if it's not very obvious that it's not bona fide obviously if it's taking part at Oxford or Moorfields or somewhere like that then it's highly likely that it's um, a proper a proper study um, okay I think um, oh hang on um, Paul um, Paul just wanted to say thank you you're very welcome Paul you're welcome. Um, oh Jenny just quickly I think we've got two minutes what's the most common genetic mutation in RP um, and if there's one with large numbers of people are the trials geared towards that um, my son's genetic mutation is FAM FAM161A I haven't heard of that one. Um, are there any trials on that? Um, it's not necessarily how many people is it that there are living with a genetic mutation that, that dictates what gets studied or what gets trialed? Um, not as far as I know, but it does help to have, you know, the, the data. So um, it, that's not to say that rare genes are not being looked at. Um, but obviously the more common genes um, like RPGR, um, you know, are already in trial phases. Um, so, so that kind of leads you to believe that the rare genes are overlooked. Um, but, but essentially, you know, we do need the data, the background data for it mm. to, to push forward, um, you know, because it's, it's commercial at the end of the day. Uh, you have to remember that it's, although we want to, um, you know, create the treatments for all of these, um, the sponsors have their own sort of commercial interests that yeah. um, they look at too. I know um, it doesn't mean that very rare genes, very rare genes are a challenge, but there are sometimes other ways of addressing those problems. And uh, Robin Alley, who was at UCL and is now at King's, has done some work with a very rare mutation where they've just done it on a special license at Great Ormond Street. So there's sometimes there are ways around these things, but um, yes. as Salwa says, it obviously is. There are rare genes that we are looking at in our own lab groups. So, mm -hmm. um, so you know, there is, even if, even though they may not be in clinical trial process uh, on stage right now, there's preclinical research going on in those um, rare genes. So the future's bright. Yeah, absolutely. And of course there's treatments that ultimately won't well, really exactly will uh, kind of push for the the rarer ones to have treatments developed for as well yeah okay thank you very much Salwa I think that um brings us to quite a nice um conclusion thank you so much um for uh, your time this evening thank you everybody for joining us Matt do you just want to follow up briefly with with how the recording is going to be dealt with and things yeah, absolutely. Um, huge, huge thank you, Sour. That was um, a fantastic presentation. Um, I've certainly learned thank a lot. Thank you for having me. Uh, and yeah, and of course, thank you to everyone that's joined us um, for our webinar today. Um, as mentioned at the beginning of the, uh, the evening, we are planning at least one of these webinars every month going forward um, and the details of the ones for um, 2022 um, will be available shortly. Um, just a gentle reminder that Retina UK is a registered charity. We receive no government funding and rely on our wonderful supporters, such as yourselves, to raise the funds needed to provide vital services and invest in groundbreaking medical research, um, some of which obviously goes towards um, these clinical trials that we've heard about today. Um, so there's some ways, many ways you can kind of get involved with this. Um, and as Christmas is literally just around the corner, um, there are a number of ways you can um, you can get involved and help us raise some of these funds. So we have got some Christmas cards available um, for purchase. If you're feeling a bit energetic, there's a virtual Santa Dash that you can get involved in. Uh, and please save any stamps from your Christmas cards and send them into our stamp appeal. Um, you can find out more um, on the website www.retinauk.com org.uk forward slash Christmas, or you can call the office team on 01280-821-334. So just to let you know, after the um, after this session this evening, we will be sending out an email. Um, this will be with you over the next couple of days, which will have details of where you can re-watch this evening's um, presentation. 
um, and details of how you can book onto any future webinars that we hold. We'll also be looking for your feedback. Um, feedback is a gift and we take on board everything that everybody says um, and it really does help to, um, to shape uh, these webinars that we, uh, we deliver and our other services. So please do fill in the feedback form um, and, uh, and send it back to us. So once again, thank you to Sawa and thank you to everybody who's joined us this evening. Thank you very much. Goodbye.